Who's got the clicker? Okay, I got a slide right before, right at the end of the sermon. And I know we tried to do this before, but Maddie Vinsel is here somewhere. No? Okay. <laughs> Must have been someone else. All right. Well, and I have a note here. A run for the unborn. A 5K, so it's not too long. Monday, September 7th. Uh, and it'll be starting at St. John's the Apostles. That's Catholic Church in Leesburg. And I don't know who put this note up here or who they should come contact. Jim, Casca. If they have questions, talk to Jim. All right. We are going to use a number of proverbs today. And uh, we'll, we'll look at those. I'm going to read just a few of them for you uh, as we get started. So we are finishing. This is our last sermon in our series on the Proverbs, and uh, this one is called Wisdom Trusts God. So let me read a few of these for you, please. As always, listen carefully as this is God's Word. Proverbs 1, verses 7 through 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Proverbs 3, 1 through 8. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Here's the key verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. And then Proverbs 9, verses 9 and 10. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So in those three passages, there's four repetitive things. Wisdom, knowledge, fear, and trust. So we're going to talk about some of those things. But before we do, let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as always, we need it. We think we're people who are wise, who know you, who trust you. Sometimes we are, and sometimes we aren't. Use your word this morning to get us to consider your wisdom. Help us to ask how we can learn how to trust you for all the circumstances, all the people, and all the hurts. So we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would make us people who trust you just as much as Jesus did. And in his name we pray, amen. So let me ask you, what do these three towns have in common? Nikolai, Alaska, Perryville, Alaska, and Polvadera, New Mexico. 
Well, a reporter for the website Gawker discovered that these are the only three zip codes in the entire country that have no record of Ashley Madison users. And what do these three places have in common? Well, two things. One, they lack the internet. <laughs> and for the most part, they lack people. <laughs> now, if you've been following the news, you know that Ashley Madison is a website that encourages married people to have affairs. So this is not a good thing. And it got hacked. And its membership list was made public and posted online. All 32 million members. And I've already had two people ask me if we were going to check our membership list against that. And I said, no, you'll just have to come tell me yourself. 32 million people. Once you rule out all of the duplicates and everything else, and it's about 10% of the adult population of our country. That's a lot of people. And one of the reasons why the Ashley Madison hack has swept through social media to such a profound degree is how all-encompassing it seems. This hack has clawed its way into communities across the country with untold negative ramifications. But obviously not every community, because Gawker uncovered there's precisely three zip codes that don't house spouses looking to cheat, at least not by using Ashley Madison. And here they are, Nikolai, Alaska, 99691, in case you're planning to go. Population 94. Perryville, Alaska, 99648. Population 113. Gawker asked a local why no one in her town was on Ashley Madison. She said there's only 10 households in the entire town that had the internet. Polvadera, New Mexico, 87828. Population 269. An employee at the county clerk's office told Gawker there was no one on Ashley Madison because there's no reception and you can't get internet in that area, which means it's four square miles of rural peace. And you thought you could trust the internet. It's all private. No one will ever find out. However, Numbers 32:23 reminds us, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. So you can't trust the internet. Everyone says you can. I mean, there's a million. If it's on the internet, it must be true jokes. The reality is most people still trust it. And to some degree, you have to. You bank online, you trust your money is secure. Credit cards, mortgages, bill pay, PayPal, all sorts of financial matters. You trust it works. How much information does Amazon, Facebook, and Google know about you? Way more than you think. You have to trust them to some degree uh, or they can very realistically ruin your life, and you trust they won't. Every day you trust that the driver coming towards you stays on his side of the road. Every day you trust that the other guy actually will stop at the stop sign. 
You trust that the road isn't going to move. In my neighborhood, one of the roads just fell into the earth. You're di driving down the street, all of a sudden there's a 30 by 40 foot sinkhole. The road just fell four feet down. And now you trust your brakes will work. Have you flown anywhere lately? You trust that the pilot, the baggage handler, the plane mechanics, the air traffic controllers are all doing their jobs correctly. My sister-in-law says, you know, everyone says if it's your time, it's your time. She says, I know, but what if it's the pilot's time? <laughs> what can you trust? How many of you had your retirement plan, your 401k, your IRA, your pension, your investments tied to the stock market? It dropped over a thousand points in one morning this week, then it came back, and then it went down again, and then it came back again. Your future financial viability is at the amusement park, and it's riding the roller coaster. The really big one with the death-defying drops and the loop-de-loops, and it's flipping you upside down and leaving you hanging in midair. Your retirement plan. Welcome to the future. What can you trust? Surely the politicians in Washington are, we're not even going to go there. <laughs> there are so many news stories demonstrating a breakdown in trust, a violation of trust, a lack of trust. I could go on for 30 minutes and just deal with the news stories from this week. We live in a society that's no longer trustworthy. It's no longer willing to trust anyone. It's no longer able to trust. And it strives to prove that you shouldn't trust anyone else either. After all, if given the chance, it will try to prove that no one should trust you too. What can you trust? Well, the simple answer is trust God. But that's so much easier said than done. John just prayed so wonderfully this morning. Easy to say, hard to do. Hard things happen. It's hard to trust God. So how do we do that? How do we trust God? Where do we start? Well, you have to begin at the beginning. And in this case, that means beginning with God. That should be the first blank there. Beginning with God. You have to do a little thinking with me as we work through this. We're finishing our summer series on the Proverbs this week, and we said that wisdom... Well, not being less is more than being just moral and good. Wisdom is knowing what's the right thing to do in the vast majority of situations in life where there are no rules or where the moral rules don't apply, that they don't address. And wisdom, basically, how do you act when you don't have a rule? And today we come to a number of themes uh, that run through the Proverbs, in fact, run through the whole Bible, and that is the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And this term, fear of the Lord, comes up. Proverbs 1, read it earlier. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then in Proverbs 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It comes up in Job 28. It comes up in Psalm 111. It's one of the main themes of the Bible, that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. But I'm not going to talk so much about the word fear this morning. I want to look at the word beginning. Because here we're told your relationship with God is the beginning of wisdom. Again, Proverbs 1 says, Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Showing the Proverbs 
is even more comprehensive than you think. It's saying that your relationship with God is the foundation even for your thinking. Your relationship with God, what you believe about God, completely determines what you know about the world and how you know it. It determines everything you know and how you know it. Now, that's a pretty astounding statement. Because in our society, we don't think like that at all. In our society, we believe that if, if you're a person of faith, if you have a religious faith, that you can believe this about God or you may believe that about God, but keep it private. It's separate. In many cases, we actually think of faith as opposed to reason. And we believe that reason, our thinking, is something that can operate apart from faith and tell us all sorts of things about the world apart from faith. It's a very typical belief in our society. That is, religious uh, beliefs are for your private life. But when it comes to your public life, for public discourse, when it talks about public matters, then we need to use reason, things we can empirically prove and just keep faith out. That's what the society says. Proverbs says exactly the opposite. And not only that, I believe the whole Bible says exactly the opposite. And what does this mean on a personal level? Essentially, it means that your relationship with God has to be central. You know, people start coming to church and they read the Bible uh, for lots of different reasons, but your relationship with God doesn't enrich you spiritually like going to the gym enriches you physically. It's not just another thing on your shelf, another add another way to help you live a better life. It's not a God plus equation. Your relationship with God must be. Now, your relationship with God is, whether you realize it or not, the most central thing in your life. Every job you take, every place you live, every relationship you have, everything you, sh you do should always be done with this question of how does it affect my relationship with God? The question is not how can I use God to live the life I want, or how can I use God to get what I want? But how is the life I'm living getting me to God? How does this affect my relationship with God? Getting to God is the most important thing. I will be out of touch with reality unless I'm in touch with the real God. Because wisdom is being in touch with reality, being competent with regard to the realities of life. So first of all, the fear of the Lord is not beginning with something else than using God to get there. It's beginning with God. But beginning with God on the path to wisdom doesn't solve any of our problems. It doesn't solve any of the problems that I opened with this morning. On a routine, ordinary, everyday basis, this isn't going to help you with your relational issues, your financial issues, your political issues, your internet issues, whatever, because you have to go deeper. And going deeper means trusting God. Trusting God. What do I mean by that? Proverbs 3 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Trusting God spells out what wisdom looks like externally in your actual practice and how you live everyday life. Now, if God is your fear, if God is your hope, if God is your 
wisdom, if God is the most central thing in your life, then there's nothing else you're more afraid of losing. Or there's nothing else that you should be more afraid of losing. And if that's the case, then you're going to trust him unconditionally. Here's what I mean. Virtually all of us start our relationship with God conditionally. We say, uh, I'm going to start coming to church. I'll start praying, start reading the Bible, and I'll pray if I start to feel good, and I'll obey if my life starts to go better. That's how most people start, almost always. I'll try God and see if my life gets better, if I feel better, if I have more strength, if I find the things I'm looking for. But whenever you say, I'll follow God if, on the other side of the ifs are your real trusts, your real fears, your real non-negotiables. If there's any ifs in your relationship with God, I'll relate to you if, I'll pray to you if, I'll obey you if, I'll follow you if. If there's any ifs at all, then God is not your trust. God is not your fear. God is not your hope. God is not your wisdom. God is not central in your life. Something else is at the center of your personality, and you're just using God to get to it. And that's what most people do, even in church. One of my favorite Bible stories, we're going to look at this a bunch today, is uh, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, found in Daniel chapter 3. And I love this. I, I love all the old Bible stories. Um, and there in Daniel 3, we read this, verses 14 to 18. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Skip a few sentences and then continues. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? You can almost hear the cynicism, you know, in his words. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, three of the greatest words in the Bible, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And Nebuchadnezzar just freaks out. He gets furious. He's angry. They're not bowing down. Look how remarkable this is. The first part of that statement, they say, we believe our God is able to save us. He can save us and rescue us from your hand. Not only that, they don't just say that he can. They say, we believe he will. He wants to. But if he doesn't, it says, but if not, our God can save, our God will save. But if not, we're not bowing down to that image. You know what they're saying? They're saying, Nebuchadnezzar, we love and serve God for himself. Not for what we get out of him. Not for what he does for us. We love and serve God. We trust God himself. We love him for himself. Not just for what he gives us. You see, I can't tell you how many times over the years... Uh, as a pastor, I've talked to people who said something to the effect of, you know, I trusted God. I've lived a good life. 
And I asked him for some really important things, and he didn't come through. They didn't happen. I trusted God. I really trusted God, and he didn't come through for me. Well, not exactly. Because you didn't quite trust God. You had God balled up with your agenda. And the real hope, the thing that really mattered, the thing that you really, really, really were trusting in and hoping in was your agenda. And you thought, if I obey God and if I pray to God, God will give me what I want. And when that didn't happen, you're out of here. You're really not trusting God. You're trusting God plus, plus, plus. God plus my agenda. God plus this. God plus that. And if that happens, fine. But if it doesn't happen, then God's not holding up his end of the deal. Not at all. And certainly not for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're saying, we just trust God, period. Not God plus, plus, plus. Just God. We obey him because he's worth it. We trust him and love him and serve him for him. Not for what we get out of it. See how unconditional their faith is? They got a lot to pray about. They're about to get chucked into a fiery furnace. It's not like there's no consequences and they're just having a, you know, intellectual debate down at the pub. Everything's on the line. And they're believing in God, period. Not God plus, plus, plus. And as a result, they can handle anything. In fact, you know, behind the statement... He will rescue us, but if not, it doesn't matter. It's something that all believers know. That is, yes, God can always rescue you from death, but he will always, if you're a believer, rescue you through death. See, if you die in him and wake up in his arms, there's nothing but freedom and peace and joy. So you see, you're always safe. When these men said, we actually believe our God is going to deliver us, but if not, we don't care. We're not bowing down to your image. They'd already won. Before they're thrown into the furnace, they've already won. They're spiritually fireproofed before they were physically fireproofed. Spiritually fireproofed, they can handle anything because they trust God alone, not God plus, plus, plus. Therefore, they can handle anything. They're spiritually fireproofed before God actually makes them physically fireproofed. And you can be too, if you're willing to be unconditional in your faith and trust God, but not God plus your agenda, plus this, plus that, but God for who he is in and of himself. I mean, that's the way you want to be loved, right? You want to be loved for yourself, not for your money. You want to be loved for yourself, not for your looks. As time goes on, by the way, your money and looks can go away. And you hope when somebody loves you, they love you for you. Right? I hope. Why should God be different? In fact, he's not. You should love him for himself. And if you do, you'll be spiritually fireproof. So trust God unconditionally. Trust God for who he is in and of himself. All sounds good. With me so far? Now we have to ask, so what makes it so hard? What makes it so hard? Let's go back to Daniel, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar is furious with them. 
with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's white hot with fury. He wants the furnace as hot as his anger. He has his servants heat the fire up seven times hotter than it was before. And then he has Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego bound up and thrown into the furnace. And the furnace is so hot that the soldiers throwing them in die because of the heat. And Nebuchadnezzar goes someplace, obviously far away, some other vantage point where he can look down into the furnace. He sees two shocking things, Daniel 3, verses 24 and 25. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, do we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, probably the only thing they ever said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So the first thing he sees is these guys walking around. They're just walking around. His soldiers died from getting near the furnace, and here they're in the furnace just walking around. That's the first shocking thing. And the second shocking thing, it's not three of them, it's four of them. And Nebuchadnezzar is at a loss for words. The fourth is like a son of the gods. First thing you have to realize is they said our God can and our God will. And their God did. He saved them after all. They're rescued by God. What do we learn from this great story? Well, first of all, in the Bible, fires, uh, furnace, often serve as metaphors for suffering and trial, tribulation, and uh, trouble. So, what we have depicted for us physically are other truths that the rest of the Bible tells us about suffering. It's sort of like a parable in action. Things that we need to know about suffering because you're going to suffer. Everybody is. So what are these truths? The first thing the Bible tells us about suffering is that it's inevitable. 1 Peter 4.12 teaches us, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Saying that's not strange. Fiery trial, suffering, not strange. And indulge me for a moment because we're here in this well-off American suburb. And on the whole face of the earth, Americans struggle with suffering the most. Almost everybody everywhere else in the history of the world expects suffering to be inevitable. Not Americans. We think if I'm suffering, somebody's doing something wrong. There's a couple ways of looking at that. You know, I can't tell you how many suffering people I've talked to said something to the effect of, you know, I'm, I lived a good life. I shouldn't be suffering. Well, Jesus lived a perfect life. And his life was filled with suffering, so why should you get a pass? There are furnaces in life. There is fire. You will walk through the fire. So the first thing the Bible promises is don't be surprised. One of the reasons why it's worth it to mention this is the pastors, I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people, they're so devastated because of their suffering. But most of the devastation is the fact they're shocked that they're even suffering at all. It's not the actual suffering, it's the fact that this shouldn't be happening to me. It's okay if it happens to you. But it shouldn't be happening to me. 
They're not just suffering, they're shocked at their suffering, and shock is at least half of what's devastating them. Get over that. If you die an early death, that's pretty bad, but if you live to 50 or older, you're going to suffer. It's inevitable. It happens. It's the first thing. There's, there's other truths here. The second thing the Bible promises about suffering, if you believe God, you trust God, then suffering relates to your character like fire relates to gold. Again, going to Peter, 1 Peter 1 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Your faith is like gold going through the fire. What does fire do to gold? It's an intense experience, of course. It actually makes it better. It makes it more beautiful. It makes it more pure. So what does that mean? I mean, that could be a whole sermon by itself. But think of a few things. You want to know your own heart? You want to know who you are? I mean, you realize what a mess your life is going to be? How many bad decisions you're going to make? How many bad relationships you're going to screw up? If you don't know who you are and what's really in your heart, if you don't know strengths and, and your weaknesses? Do you want to be a sympathetic person, a compassionate person, a person who helps other people, who has empathy and compassion and sympathy for other people? You want to have a profound trust in God, so you really put all your weight on Him. You just want to be wise about life. If the answer to any of those questions is yes, then you need suffering. None of those things are achievable without suffering. If that seems outrageous, I really don't have time this morning to make that case. And I'm afraid, actually, for a lot of you, you already know it's true. Many of you don't think it's outrageous at all, because I'm talking about your life. There's no way to really know who you are until you're tested. There's no way to really learn how to trust God until you're drowning. There's no way to really empathize and sympathize with other suffering people unless you've suffered yourself. There's no other way to really become wise about how life works. Does that mean it's automatic? I'm afraid not. If you suffer, do you just automatically become a better person? Now, we all know that's not true. There's plenty of people who've been broken by suffering, terrible suffering, terribly broken. So what do you have to do in order to grow instead of be uh, wrecked? or destroyed by your suffering? The answer is you need to know God. You need to trust God. There's great promises in the Bible. God says, uh, if you trust in me, I'll be walking through you in that furnace, through those hard times. In the midst of that difficult situation, I'll be right next to you in your suffering. Isaiah 43 says, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. 
Who was the one who was there with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Nebuchadnezzar says, he looks like a son of the God. By the way, the word used there is Elohim, which is the uh, Hebrew word for God. He looks like a son of God. Nebuchadnezzar does a pretty good job of nailing who this is because he doesn't just call him the son of the gods. He refers to this person one more time towards the end of the chapter, Daniel 3.28. He says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his serpent, servants who trusted in him. In the Old Testament, there's angels, and then there's the angel, the angel of the Lord. When the angel of the Lord shows up, it's not like Gabriel says, here's what God says. When the angel of the Lord shows up, he speaks as God. That's who's in the fire. God in visible form. It's God in a manifestation, what we call theophany. Therefore, it's the pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ himself. Now, how can you get to a place where when you go through suffering, it's turning you into gold instead of something else. This is what you need to know. You will feel Jesus Christ walking with you in your furnace to the degree that you know Jesus Christ was thrown into the ultimate furnace for you. If you remember that Jesus was thrown into the furnace for you, you'll feel him in your cooler, smaller furnace with you. How do you learn that lesson? Well, I'm not sure I can answer that question for you. I can only show you how I learned and have to keep learning that lesson for myself. Do you remember what you were doing on November 5th, 1999? Some of you may, some may not. Some of you weren't even born yet. I can tell you what Jed Farrow was doing that day because Jed was visiting me in the hospital. See, on that day, I was driving home from lunch with Steve Garnier, always a good person to have lunch with. And on my way home, I got T-Bone crossing Route 50. It's now a six-lane intersection with lots of lights. But 16 years ago, it was a two-lane crossing with no lights. And I lost. I have a slide for you. In the end, I was fine. A little shorter, but fine. However, over time, I became extremely depressed. You see, the point of impact is the rear passenger door. And that's where my son Daniel usually sat. And at the time, Daniel was eight years old. He's 24 now, he's doing fine. But back then, I had this overwhelming, paralyzing fear that I could have killed Dan. And I couldn't shake it, and I couldn't take it, and I couldn't function. And this depression just hung on me like a cloud. And it was awful. A few months later, you can take the slide down now. A few months later, Joanne and I went to a Sonship conference put on by World Harvest Missions, now called Surge. As part of the conference, they offered counseling, and I needed that. So I signed us both up, you know, because I didn't want to have to do it by myself. 
And as a precursor to the counseling, you had to get people to write the counselor a letter about you. And so I asked some elders. I have no idea why. And I don't know what they wrote, but I'm pretty sure it was something like, this guy's totally screwed up. you got to do something. So I sit down across from the counselor. He says, tell me about the accident. I'm like, how do you know about the accident? Never mind that, just tell me. So I tell him, and he looks right at me. Older guy, wonderful guy, with the Lord now. Uh, he looks right at me, he says, this is easy. You don't trust God. And I'm like, this is easy. I'm going to punch you in the face. <laughs> I didn't say that. I may have thought that, but I didn't say that. He went on to say, it's not about the accident. It's about your son. Because when it comes to your son, when it comes to your children, you don't trust God. And that's because when it comes to your children, Dave trusts Dave. I got so angry. But I didn't say anything. Because way down deep inside, in the very core of my being, I knew instantly at that very moment that he was absolutely right. I didn't trust God. I trusted myself and only myself. And that began this long, still ongoing process of learning how to trust God for my children, which is way harder than it sounds because just like their father, my children are sinners. They're free agents. Just like their father, they have a free will. And just like their father, they make their own Decisions, both good and bad, and those decisions have consequences, both good and bad. And sometimes the only thing you can do is step back and watch and pray and trust God. And that's the biggest lesson I've learned since I've been at Potomac Hills. And that began an even longer, still ongoing process of learning how to trust God for myself, and learning how to trust God for my wife, and learning how to trust God for my parents, and learning how to trust God for my friends and learning how to trust God for my church, this church, all of you. And I wish I could tell you that now I've got it all figured out, but I don't. It's one day at a time, and some days go better than others. And right now I'm watching lots of other parents go through the same thing. Something's happened, and they're being forced to learn how to trust God for their children. It's a lesson they have to learn. You have to learn. But it's still very hard. And it may not be a literal fiery furnace, but on the inside, it sure feels like it. Years ago, Jonathan Edwards, probably the greatest theologian America has ever produced, preached a wonderful sermon called Christ's Agony. It's about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember how in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is struggling, he's praying, he's sweating, great drops of blood, he's in agony. What is that agony? This is a paraphrase, but here's how Jonathan Edwards interprets it. Edwards says about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he had then a near view of the furnace of God's divine wrath into which he was about to be cast a furnace vastly more terrible than Nebuchadnezzar's furnace. 
Jesus was brought into the garden to the place where he stood and viewed its raging flames. He saw the glowings of its heat that he might know what he was about to suffer. This is the thing that filled his soul with sorrow and darkness. This terrible sight, as it were, overwhelmed him. And the gospel is that you and I, because we don't always love God with our, all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, because we don't always love our neighbors as ourselves, because we don't begin with God, we don't make God central in our lives, we don't trust God, we deserve to be cast away from God. We deserve to lose God forever when we die. But because we're built for God's presence, to lose God forever means to be in agony. It's hell. It's a furnace. And Jesus Christ came to earth and on the cross experienced the wrath we deserve. In other words, he was thrown into the ultimate furnace, the furnace we deserve. That's how we're saved. And when we believe in him, none of that wrath comes to us. At the very end of Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar speaks prophetically more than he knows. He says, no other God can save like this. Daniel 3.29, therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. You hear that? For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. That's right, look at every other religion. Every religion has a way of salvation. But what is every other religion's way of salvation? It's if you do this, if you live a good life, if you do that, then God will save you. Well, what does that do? If that's your belief, what do you do when suffering shows up? When suffering hits, you're trying to live a good life. You're either going to hate God because you say, I've lived a good life, why are you letting this happen to me? So you're in despair. Or you may get down on yourself and you say, I, you know, I know I really haven't lived a good life. And then you're in despair that way. In other words, every other God, every other religion gives you a way of salvation that's based on you. Your good works, your performance, your effort, your morality. And I want you to know, when you go into the furnace with that set of beliefs, it will destroy you. The furnace will destroy you. You either be mad at God or mad at yourself or both. But if you say to yourself when you're in the furnace, this is a small furnace. This is a cool furnace. This is not being punished for my sins because Jesus was already thrown into the ultimate furnace for me. This means what I'm going through right now, if, if he went through that steadfastly for me, then I can go through this steadfastly for him. Also know it means if I trust him, this furnace is going to make me better. He suffered not that I might suffer, but that when I suffer, I become more like him. If you remember Jesus Christ being thrown into the furnace for you, then you'll sense his presence with you in your trials, in your suffering, in your furnace. And he will turn you into gold. And it will teach you to trust God. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close.
Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Thank you that you speak to us by your Word. Thank you for Proverbs. Thank you for Daniel. Thank you for the Scriptures. And Father, thank you for bringing all the hard things into our lives so that we'll learn to trust you and not ourselves. We need the gospel to trust you. We need the gospel to trust you for our children. We need the gospel to trust you for our parents. We need the gospel to trust you for our husbands and wives. We need the gospel to trust you for our friends. We need the gospel to trust you for our church. We need the gospel to trust you in the furnace. We know the covenant love of Jesus Christ and that he is, by the power of the Holy Spirit, making the gospel real to our hearts, then we can trust you and we will trust you and we can do it together. Jesus, thank you for giving yourself for us and walking through the fire with us. Give us all this morning this faith. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ who went into the furnace for us and who today lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.